Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and that is page 813 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. We're going to read just two verses, actually not even two full verses, which I think will become evident as we move along, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. So I think in the past few minutes of our worship service, the one fruit of the Spirit that we got right was probably joy. Okay? <laughs> so we might have blown it on the other ones, but we got, we got joy right. So, quite fun. Okay, verse 4 of chapter 13. And we're here this morning is because we've been working systematically through uh, 1 Corinthians. We started back last year, September and so the reason why we're here this morning is, is this is the place where we should be. So verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. Amen. May God grant us understanding of his word and let's bow together, please. When Satan tempts us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So Father, we would simply ask this morning that you would take our hearts and set them on fire in love for Jesus Christ, for one another, and to the watching world. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, when we arrived in chapter 13, we acknowledged that this chapter is found in just about every place imaginable. And we said that it's often preached in every way imaginable. And so, because of the context, we should know just right off the bat that this chapter on love is not specifically for husband and wife. It's not for boyfriend and girlfriend. It's not specifically um, for people on that bent. This is specifically for the church. And it's specifically for this Corinthian church who had an awful problem with loving each other. And so we said because of this, chapter 13 is usually regarded as a kind of warm and fuzzy chapter. But in reality, when one begins to set this chapter in its context, as we always should, if we want to know its truth, we begin to realize that this beautiful poetic chapter 13 is more so a stinging rebuke to the church in Corinth. And the reason why that was the case is because this church, which loved the more excitable gifts, you know, the gifts of miracles and faith and prophecy and so on, the church which loved the phenomenal and the supernatural gifts, the church which loved rating others in the use of their gift, and the church that loved judging other Christians in general, that church was in need, great need, to have the greatest gift. Do you see it there, the last line in chapter 12, if your Bible's open, the greatest gift the gift of love, increasingly active in its life. And what is true for them is on some level true for every church, so it's true for this church. And this church, as we look into the mirror of God's Word and see this chapter, what we ought to do is see it as a dirt-revealing mirror. And so, loved ones, when Paul writes about love, again, he's not writing of an emotion. This is an attitude 
expressed in emotion. This is the kind of love which John Sott said is a servant of the will. It's not a victim of the emotion. Okay, in other words, this kind of love does not begin with a mood. So I feel it, so then I'm going to do it. No, no, no. This kind of love begins with the mind. I think it. I see where God gives me a definition of love because I know that I shouldn't come up with my own definitions of such a word. And then I begin to apply it in my life. So, so we have to understand this as we're thinking things through. Jesus Christ has set up things in the church so that his church, his church, never really need to deal with disunity. Not if love is active. Not if the church is in submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, we know it may happen, and we know it does happen. But it doesn't need to happen. Because Jesus Christ covers all the bases All the things which would go, would say, get in the way of unity. Because Christ, as head of the church, makes a way for unity. So that the only thing that could actually break unity in the church of Jesus Christ is, is frankly, apostasy. Right? So when someone rejects the gospel, when someone rejects openly the main and plain orthodoxy, the essentials of the faith, anything that's tied to the gospel, we're not talking about secondary issues, but the things that are tied to the gospel, when a person outright rejects that, then the unity can take, disunity, excuse me, can take place. There can be a breaking off. However, in Corinth, having forgotten the, the, or disregarded the basic truths of the Christian faith. Basic truth which says we are all sinners saved by grace. Right? That's a basic truth. There's a hymn that has the title My Lord Was Empty and has this lovely line In stunning grace He took my sin and suffered boundless loss. You get this feeling that that hymn probably wouldn't have been saying in Corinth, right? Listen to the refrain. For Jesus was emptied. My Lord was emptied to rescue me from sin. You see, that is the spirit of Jesus that that church did not have. So having forgotten or disregarded that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, having forgotten that we all have been given gifts as Christian, and listen carefully, every gift is a gift, And every gift matters. There is not to be any hierarchy of gifts, really. And every gift, and and please, because of the times, we forget this. Every gift that we exercise, whenever we enjoy any amount of success in that gift, it is only because of the grace of God. Think, what was the problem in Corinth? I like that guy, I like that guy, I like that guy. Look at him go. Look at him go. Forgetting the most basic truth there is. 1 Corinthians 3 6. Some water, some plant, both are nothing. But only God is the something because only God makes things grow. So that ratings game that could be in the church, it's chucked. It is chucked. Or 1 Corinthians 4 7, another basic Christian truth. What do you have that you didn't receive? Right? Everything we have, uh, everything we have. Food, clothing, shelter, job, our condition in life, and in the case of the church, the activity of our spiritual gifts, everything was received. And if you received it, why do you boast? Why do you take pride wrongly as if it was all you? It was all you. Paul says it wasn't. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, another basic Christian truth. God will judge in the church. We have no right to. God has saved a date on his divine calendar and will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's Genesis, right? Will he not do right? Of course he will. No one's going to get away with anything. 
because the judge of all this earth will do right. So if you or I approach this chapter with a kind of, you know, no problem, I am good on this one, or uh, no problem, I'm good at most of this, or you know what, I know a person who's not good at any of this, or I'm glad you're preaching about love today because, you know, I'm pretty darn good at that exercise. Or, one more, sorry, if you or I approach this chapter like the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler? Okay, Jesus, I want eternal life. You show me what to do, point me in the right direction, and I can do this, right? You tell me what to do, and by golly, I'll do it. If that is us this morning, then God help us. God help us. This chapter is meant to humble us and to show us what's right, what's wrong, and to show us why we all need a Savior. And then that Savior, in his mercy, points to this chapter and he says to all of us, now lower yourself, humble yourself, and with my help over the long haul until your last breath, I, Jesus, your Savior, who loves you, is committed to work this love in you. So then, if you see your Bible there, but it's open, Paul says, okay, warning, you can do all kinds of seemingly spiritual things. Verse 1, ecstatic utterances. Verse 2, we can have the brightest mind and we can have the biggest faith. Verse 3, we can give it all up, right? All our possessions and our whole person, we can give it all up. In other words, it's possible to do this and yet still not have love And if we don't have love when we're doing all those tremendous things, they don't mean nothing. They don't mean anything. Not even a speck, God. No, not even a speck. Now, loved ones, I want you to tell me, is there any other way that we ought to understand this chapter? There isn't. There isn't. You see, the church of Corinth, in all their wisdom, right, in all their knowledge, in all their incredible giftedness, look past the most basic Christian truth there is. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him. It is because of God. Now think, think. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, Jesus is my righteousness, Jesus is my holiness, and Jesus is my redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boast, boast in the Lord. Basic Christian truth. No boasting, no bragging. Why? Because it was by grace that we've been brought to this moment, and it's the grace of God that continues in us through every moment until our last breath, and then the grace of God will change us in an instant on that last day. Now, one last thing before we go, go on. This struck me this week. Is it not amazing that Paul will spend almost no time explaining all the other gifts, right? Up till now, he uses basically no time explaining all the other gifts, but he's gonna use a whole chapter to explain for us this gift of love. Now, that's pretty much, that's not like us. Because we want to be fascinated by the tongues thing, and I want to be understanding the prophecy thing, and I want to go real deep in the miracle thing, and I want to go real deep in the healing thing. But when it gets to love, we tend to just let it walk on by. And we can't do that. And we're not going to do that. So let's get started.
First of all, you need to know this, that, that in the Greek, all these words here are in the verbal form. Okay, so why is that important? Well, it's important because the weight of Paul's words is not so much on what love is, but actually what love does. That's the weight of his words. That love behaves in a certain way, which should remind us of a few things. Number one, um, Paul's not trying to produce a mood here. He's trying to stir the mind that will stir a life. That's the first thing. Secondly, this will serve as a reminder to us that if we merely listen to the word, right, and don't attempt to put the word in practice, then none of what will happen here over these next few minutes will benefit you at all. Okay, so instead of in growing increasingly like Jesus Christ and increasingly useful in his service, we won't grow at all. Now, you should know this. Last Sunday morning, after our second service, I had to go to another place immediately. And on the way to that place, I almost, I'm pretty close to have, I had a panic attack, and this is what I was panicking over. I just got through preaching 2 Corinthians 4, and, and um, I thought to myself, did anybody listen? Is anybody going to make application to what was said that morning into their lives? And I'm your pastor. I'm your shepherd. One of them. And it bothered me that I didn't know the answer to that. That, that I didn't, couldn't say for sure that people were going to take it and apply it so they can be increasingly useful to their Savior and to His church. So this is important, right? Okay. So these words that were written here are written in what is called the present continuous tense. And the reason why I tell you that is because Paul is saying that this love gift, it's not a one-time deal. So it's not like all of a sudden you have all of these 15 characteristics of love forever so that you never need to work on them, you never need to reflect on them, you never need to have repentance because you're not fulfilling them, and you never need to pray and ask God to help you grow in these things. Paul's like, no, it's much more difficult than that. So Paul is telling the church these characteristics are to be practiced, they are to become habitual, and by constant repetition, we will grow in this grace of love. And as you think about that, David Pryor in one of his commentaries points out that this verse, you could read it and easily replace the word love with the name Jesus, right? Because Jesus was the only one. He was unequaled, (laughs) In these things. So Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Right? So I would never dare dream to try to replace my name in that sequence. And I'd be surprised if any of us could be willing to do that. This is a divine thing that needs to work through us and come out of us. Hence the, the greatness of this challenge. And if you think about it, hence the greatness of the gospel which picks us up and dusts us off when we get this wrong. And that's a big deal. Okay, number one, love is patient. Patient. See? I saw some of you wiggle. (laughs) The word means long-suffering, to suffer long. So there's a tension in our mind. Whenever the situation comes where we would be tempted to lose it, we hold ourselves in check before we set ourselves loose, 
So the word conveys control. In other words, Paul is saying love has a long fuse. How long? Really long. Really, really, really long. Love takes time before fuming and blowing up. In fact, there's a song that was sung in the 70s by a group called Orleans. It's a beautiful song. Love takes time and it's hard to find. You've got to take some time to let love grow. It's a good song and it's right. Love does, sorry, take time. And so the usage here is not really circumstance, but people. That's where Paul is the stress is. So in other words, we are not to be quick to assert our rights when we've been wrong. We are not quick to resent an injury. We're not to be quick to let them have it. You know, I am right, they're wrong. Okay, so I'm going to let them have it. No. There was a preacher that lived in the 4th century. His nickname was the uh, Golden Mouth. And this is what he said about this word. This word refers to a man who has been wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. So this is not weakness, but rather what we find in Jesus Christ. This is actually meekness. This is power, real power, under control as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit active in our lives. So you must know that this kind of word would not have been attractive to the listeners of that day because at that time and in that um, situation, patience was not a virtue. In fact, Aristotle had a group of people called the Avengers, okay? Believe it or not, the Avengers. And this is what he said. The great Greek virtue was the refusal to tolerate insult or injury and to strike back in retaliation at the slightest offense, okay? That's what they wanted. That was real, being a real man, if you would. The slightest offense. I'm going to let him have it. There was a study done at the University of Macquarie in Southeast Australia. They took on this research project and they wanted to know when did meekness and humility uh, enter into the ancient world because it wasn't always around where they did their homework. And this is what they found, that this virtue did not come until Jesus Christ began to walk this earth and those writings of his, the gospels and, and some of the epistles began to circulate and all of a sudden this virtue of patience began to be something that people would want to model and want to do beforehand, the ancient world knew nothing of patience. If someone wronged me, they would get it and they would get it fast. Love, though, suffers long. Love holds itself at bay. And listen to the words of Peter, 1 Peter 2, 23. This is Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, Jesus made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter goes on. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So not only did Jesus suffer long, but he gave back love, right? Love that wasn't an emotion, but it was a decision. Okay, that was Jesus. What about God, right? Because sometimes people are like a good God, a good cop, bad cop with Jesus and, and God, right? God's the bad cop. He's the angry one and Jesus is the good one. No, listen to your Bible, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, God is patient with you. Same word here. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's good, right? God wants everybody to win. God has the right to blow it wide open. Anytime 
he would like, but he doesn't. He waits. He gives people time. God is patient. There was an atheist who was a popular speaker in the 19th century, Robert Ingersoll. And he would often do this little thing in his talk where he, right in the middle of the talk, would stop and he would kind of go to his watch and he would say, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things that I've said. Okay, so he would keep going and he would watch his watch as he was talking and the five minutes would expire and he assumed that the point was made, right? Because he's still alive, five minutes over with, and I'm still alive, so therefore God must not be real. So one day there was a Christian in the audience and he said this to the people around him, did Mr. Ingersoll think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? It's good, right? He's right. President Lincoln had a man who hated him. His name was Edward Stanton, right? He called Lincoln a clown, a gorilla, and cunning. And after Lincoln was elected president, when he began to select his cabinet, his minister of war was none other than Edward Stanton. So people asked him, he hates you. Why in the world did you pick him? Listen to what Lincoln said. Because he is the best man for the job. And I will treat him with every courtesy. And then history records for us that the night that Lincoln was assassinated, his body was taken almost immediately to the stateroom. And then there people saw Stanton weeping over the dead body of Lincoln, Lincoln and saying this through his tears. There lies the greatest ruler of men this world has ever seen. You see, Lincoln's patient love conquered the hardest and rudeness of Edward Stanton's heart. Why? Because love is patient. Number two, love is kind. And the word actually means love performs good deeds. Love is good-natured. And and the idea is that this word means useful. It's useful and generous with that which is the good. So J.B. Phillips translates this, love looks for ways to be constructive. So in the past, there, there was a word noble. It doesn't get thrown around very much, but it's a great word. And this word noble had the idea of this kindness mixed with generosity. And the idea that the noble person was actually a liberal person. So they were very liberal with kindness. They were liberal with the good. They were generous with their resources. So whatever good was needed, whether it be time, energy, money, they immediately acted in love, acted in kindness, and they met the need. And if you did that, you were called a noble person. Now, if you think about that, is it not so that so many modern men and women are... are are so careful with their coins and so careful with their time that kindness to those in need can sometimes be twisted to project some kind of defect on the needy. And you wonder why God put noble people on this earth to begin with, to help the needy. So that these kind of, we'll call them mischievous people, they have this clever way of saying, you know what, I need to be cruel to be kind. You know that song? Cruel to be kind means that I love you. This is for your own good. Listen to your Bible. Isaiah 32, 7 and 8. This is the word of God. Scoundrels, cheats, use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies. Even when the plea of the needy is just. 
Verse 8, but the noble man makes noble plans and by noble deeds they stand. See, that is kindness. That is kindness. Kindness is good, especially towards the bad. And again, God is our supreme example. Romans 2, 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? Same root word there. His kindness that leads you to repentance. Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the kindness, same Greek word, root word, the kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So, if you're going to be honest, like I'm going to be honest, this is easy to say, it's easy to understand, but it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do. Kindness does not give to people what they deserve. Kindness gives to people what they need. Kindness is to have a gentle and kind disposition as to not be so easily provoked when we are injured by others, right? Kindness is not ready to take offense, but, and this is Moffat, prepared to endure anything rather than to do like action to wicked men. So in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 33, Luke does something really interesting. He says, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. So you're reading this and, you, and you're letting this unfold in your mind. You see Jesus' body being dragged to the place of the skull. And then you see the cross being pounded in the ground. And you see your Savior body just kind of lunge when the, when the cross goes into the ground. And then Luke records for us the very first words out of the mouth of Christ once his cross went up. You ready? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing, right? I could call down legions of angels and take hold of this whole situation. But instead of calling down that, I called down forgiveness. That's kindness. So there's always going to be a place for kindness in the church. Always be a place for kindness in the home. There's always going to be a place where the kind person is a student of other people. They begin to study them and they begin to treat them based on that person's need. That's kindness. Love is patient. Love is kind. Number three, love does not envy. So Paul's given us two positives. Now he goes negative. Love does not envy. Envy and jealousy. The the words are just about interchangeable here. Envy and jealousy are the why not me words, right? Why don't I I have what they have? Why can't I have what they have, right? And so the real test in this is to check our reaction to the news of another's successes, right? When someone is advancing in the things of Christ in the local church and they seem to be moving along at a wonderful clip in the life of the church, can we praise God for that? Can we praise God for them? Can we pray that that will happen to all the other people in the life of the church? There's a wonderful prayer. It's called the Litany of Humility. It was written a long time ago. When I first came across this prayer, the part that I'm going to read to you, I couldn't go through. I couldn't pray it. I couldn't pray it. This is what it says. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire that others may be esteemed more than I. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. That others may be chosen and I set aside. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. That others may be preferred to me in everything. 
that others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. And it was those last four lines. It was rough for me. So envy comes to us in two ways. Number one, I want what they have. Number two, I wish they did not have what they have. Proverbs 27.4 Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? I was rereading the, the, the recounting of a life of a pastor who ruined his ministry by doing all kinds of horrible things. And the article that I was reading, there was a lady in the church that was quoted as saying this, I always envied their marriage. I always wanted my marriage to be like their marriage. I always thought he, pastor, would have been a far better husband than my own. And I was wrong. I was wrong. Love does not want what others have. It does not wish others did not have what they have. And then, as we think through that, then envy will always be a problem. Because there's always going to be a people who will have more than we have. And there will always be a people who do better than we can do. There's always going to be someone thinner, someone taller, someone smarter, someone faster, someone prettier, someone more handsome. So we better learn how to deal with this, most likely on our knees. We better learn that art of contentment. We better be convinced of the providence of God. We better be convinced of the sovereignty of God. We better be okay with who we are and what we have and how we function in the life of the church. And we better get rid of all the if-onlys. They will cripple you. If only I had done this. If only she would have done that. If only God would have done that. Get rid of all the if-onlys and start letting the why-me's come to place. Why me, God? Why in the world did Jesus die for my sin? Why in the world did you choose me at this time? Why, God, do you keep forgiving me? Why me? Why me? Why me? Which is better, if-only or why me? The good kind of why me. Envy is the mindset of the devil. He wasn't happy with his high position at first and he wanted more. He couldn't have it and was prepared to do anything to get it. But he never did get it. He never did get it. Envy and jealousy then can wreak havoc in a church. And we have to be careful. And just let me say this as a brief aside. Parents, we we want our children to be good. Not for family pride. Not for family pride but for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a huge difference. Number four, love does not boast. And I think that you see this most clearly in the life of Jesus Christ because it always seemed like Jesus Christ wasn't ever very interested in gaining recognition. He, he never needed to overplay his ministry. You never had this sense that Jesus was tooting his own horn. You see in Jesus Christ one who did not demand his own rights. He, he left his reputation, reputation and he left his station in life completely in God's hands. Right? So he wasn't trying to position himself for greatness. He, he wasn't trying to reshape his history so that everyone would know how fantastic he was. I mean, think about it. 
when Jesus comes into this world, there was suspicion about his birth, right? Did Mary sleep with someone else? He was only a carpenter's son. Nazareth, his hometown, what was the word on Nazareth? What good could come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is like the east side, right? And he had to be pointed out in the Garden of Gethsemane before they took him away to his cross. Does that sound like someone's life who's just built on a boast? Absolutely not. And we better be careful then sometimes the books that we read, those, those popular Christian books sometimes, or those cultural Christian books, the how-to books that tell us we deserve better and that you can have better. Follow these steps. And we want to follow these steps not just to be better, but we want to boast to the world that we finally are better. We can't do that. Love does not do that. The King James Version says love does not vaunt itself. It means throw itself forward, parading all of its accomplishments. And of course, that was happening in the Corinthian church. They love boasting. They love putting themselves forward. They, they would have probably broken the internet, right, if they were posting about how great they were. Boast, boast, boast. Did you see me last Sunday? Did you see me do that? Did you see me? Did you see me? Did you see me? C.S. Lewis. Bragging is the utmost evil. Number five, love is not proud. J.B. Phillips, love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. So many in the Corinthian church had, had a sneaking suspicion that they had arrived at perfection. Hence, they thought it was okay to judge because they were perfect and the person that they were judging was not. They thought it was okay to rate others because they were perfect and the person they were rating was not. And they thought that they really knew so they could really judge. And Paul calls that pride. He calls it puffed up. And, and can we not see how difficult this would be even in our own context? Because the bent of the world is, tells us, you know, seize the moment. Be your own man. Strut your stuff. You make sure everyone knows that you really got it together. And because if you don't, no one else will. And you, you know, you be aggressive out there. You know, impression or intimidation, whatever you need, but you make sure that the world knows that you're the one. And then we read our Bibles. Jesus and John. John had a wonderful ministry, John the Baptist, and then Jesus' ministry begins to overshadow it as it should. John says, chapter 1, verse 27, I'm not worthy to get on the ground and untie this guy's shoes. He must increase. I must decrease. William Carey was the founder of modern missions. He came from the low street. He he came from the east side, if you would. And he worked in a shoe shop. But God took him and gave him incredible gifts so that he made an impression that is still going on years and years and decades and decades after his life. So Carey would move around in circles in India from people in the high street. So you have low street Christian carry with high street pagans. And, and of course, God greatly used him. So, so one night there was a dinner party. And he was at the party and there was a man from the high street. He was a pagan. And he was filled with pride. And he began to under, hear that Carrie was just basically a, a, a shoemaker or so he thought. So this is what he says at the party. So, Mr. Carey, in a loud voice. I heard you are a shoemaker. Ha, 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 ha. And Carrie replies, Oh, no. It's far worse, your lordship. I am only a shoe mender. I'm not a shoemaker. 
Pride has a big head. Love has a big heart. Love is concerned with giving itself, not asserting itself. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. A self-important spirit before a fall. Number six, love isn't rude. So in this way, love is essentially well-mannered. It's not discourteous. In the 18th century, the word for manners was actually the word that we would know as morals. So if you were a moral person in the 18th century, they understood you to be a well-mannered person. Did you hear that? You, I think that's wonderful. And so big deal if you have the gifts of speaking and teaching and mountain-moving faith. Big deal if you act like an idiot if you're rude, if you're unkind, if you're never considering others, big deal if you're the super cool uh, wonder boy, big deal no matter what, if you don't have love, this kind of love, if you're rude, you're missing everything. So do you remember Jesus at the dinner party? There was a prostitute there and she steps into the party and she washes Jesus' feet and she uses her hair to to wipe his feet. And remember the, the man there, the Pharisee Simeon? And he said, if this guy, he thought to himself, if this prophet was a prophet, if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and who's touching her, you know, and he would know, and he would know, and you want to say, oh, be quiet, you know, the TV talkers. I never thought I would see the day. I would never do that. I could never see myself doing that. Yes, you could, you liar. You liar. And so Jesus says to Simeon this, do you see this woman, Simeon? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Manners, Middle Eastern tradition at the time. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, manners. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. Again, manners, Middle Eastern tradition. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has been shown. What was Jesus saying in part? Where's your manners? Where's your manners? Bishop Lightfoot, about one of his students, let him go where he will. His face will be a sermon in itself. Final one. You'll be glad to know. Number seven. Verse 5b. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. There's a tombstone in England that has this on it. Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared nothing for others but only gathered his wealth. Now where he is and how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. Contrast that to another tombstone in the courtyard of St. Peter's Cathedral in London which reads, Sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. That's a man. That's a man. That's a noble man. That's a loving man. True love. Completely unselfish. Easy to say. Hard to practice. Thanks for your attention this morning. Let's bow and pray. May the love of Jesus fill us as the waters fill the sea. Christ exalting, self-abasing. This is victory for me.
Father, may you grant to us the grace that we need to deal with our loveless hearts. And may you do that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us with an undying love and loved us so much that he put his whole life forward as a propitiation for our sins. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.